We live in a plastic world, don't we? We live in a world where everyone is apparently happy, but truthfully miserable and despairing. We live in a world in which we can have the right number of kids, wear the right clothes, live in the right house, go to the right school, be in the right neighborhood, have the right smile on our face, so as to believe that, to, to make everyone else believe as though we are in fact happy. It's all plastic. Because it seems as though somehow, some way, we have convinced ourselves, and certainly it's a deception of our enemy, but have convinced ourselves that if we can just have enough other people believe that we're happy, if we can just have another, enough other people believe that we have joy in the Lord, if we can just have enough other people believe that, that we are godly, then maybe in some way we are. Perception is reality, right? And unfortunately, this plastic culture that we live in, this plastic society that we live in, has not avoided the church. The church, in fact, many churches often are, are completely plastic with a facade on the front that looks like a church and sounds like a church and behaves like a church, but in fact, it's all just imaginary. Many Christians are this way. Many Christians come and they come every week or many, many uh, people attend churches every week and their, their hope is, is that in some way they can alleviate all of the guilt that they wrestle with every single day. Hoping that in some way they can, they can come to grips with the emptiness that is in them. But it's plastic. What they've found doesn't seem to help. What they've found doesn't seem to work. What they've found doesn't seem to transform them. And so they're continuing to search. And they're continuing to seek. And they're continuing to look. This morning I wonder how many of you could describe yourselves that way. That in your life there's more plastic than there is real person. That in your life there's more of a facade than a reality. That in your life there's greater disparity than there is joy. That in your life there is more misery than there is contentment. This is not a new problem. As a matter of fact, what we're going to see today is this dates all the way back to the time of Jesus. That even in Jesus' day, even in the Jewish culture in which Jesus found himself, we see where there's this need for plastic religion. There's this need for counterfeit religion so that I, I appear godly, so that I appear happy, so that I appear as though I am walking with Christ when in fact I am not. As we went through all chapter 5, what we saw Jesus talking about was largely the teachings of the Pharisees. The teachings of these people and how, how they had taken God's word and they had twisted it and manipulated it and misinterpreted it and, and uh, reproduced it that way and taught other people that way. As we begin to move into chapter 6 this morning, we're going to begin seeing a shift. We're shifting away from the teachings of the Pharisee, and now we're getting into the day-to-day -day living of the Pharisees. Ways that they actually went about their lives, and went about their faith, and went about their attempts at godliness. And I think that as we read the Pharisees this morning, and as we spend the next few weeks talking about this, what we're going to see is there's a lot of Pharisee in us. There's a lot of tendency in us, even those of us who are firmly in Christ, even those of us who walk with Christ, even those of us who love Christ, that we will see some of these characteristics, in fact, in our lives as well. So if you have your Bibles, turn, with the, turn in them with me 
to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Please stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to read the first four verses. And Jesus says, it's recorded by Matthew, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you may, your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. And so Jesus starts off in verse 1 with a sweeping principle. He's going he's gonna to give us this, this broad principle in verse 1. And then he's going to spend the, about the next 18 verses kind of unpacking it. And, and illustrating it. And explaining it. And, and helping it come to bear in our lives. So let's read it again. Verse 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I like the way the New English translation uh, translates this. It says, Beware of uh, displaying your godliness. Beware of displaying your righteousness for other people to see. I think that makes sense to us, and I think that really gets to the heart of what Jesus is talking about, because we live in a world of displays, don't we? We live in a display world. We live in a world in which everything that we want, and everything that we are, and everything that we do is, is essentially put out as a trophy case for other people to admire. And so what I think Jesus is coming after here is what I would describe as Facebook godliness, or Facebook righteousness. Now, I'm sure none of you have friends like this on Facebook, but I have friends on Facebook that like me to believe, according to what they're posting, that they are just especially godly. I think this is especially bad, and I think um, Aaron and uh, Zach could back me up on this. I think this is especially bad within the seminary community. Um, if, if Some people, for some guys, when you go to seminary, it's kind of akin to giving a two-year-old a double-shot espresso. Like, you just run around like a fool, not really sure what to do, right? And so I, I've, got, I've got seminary friends, and they'll post things like this on Facebook. I woke up at 4 a.m., and I memorize, finished memorizing the book of Ezekiel. And after I was finished memorizing the book of Ezekiel, I began meditating on the Apostles' Creed. As I was doing that, I was contemplating the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, and how beautiful a friendship that really is. Now... What are they saying? What are they saying here? They're saying, would somebody look at me? Can I get some credit here? Can I get some credit? I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning. I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning to memorize the prophecy of Ezekiel. Now, what are they really saying? They're really saying, don't you wish you were as godly as me? Don't you wish you love Jesus the way that I love Jesus? Don't you wish that Je you would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning for Jesus? Don't you wish that you could understand a word in the Apostles' Creed? Don't you wish these things? What are they doing? 
They're displaying their righteousness. They're displaying their godliness. They're, they're putting it out there so that the whole world can see. Because the truth is, is praise God if the Lord moves in your life that way. Praise God if he moves in your life to get you out of the bed so that you can spend a number of hours with him before your day gets started. But if he moves in your life, there's no need for anybody else to know about it. Just do it. Just do it. And I think that really gets to the heart of what Jesus is talking about here. That righteousness and godliness is really irrelevant what everybody else thinks. Are you really pursuing the Lord? Are you really obeying the Lord? Are you really pursuing righteousness? Are you just doing it in a way because you want everybody else to believe that you are? And what really comes into view here is not so much the method of public worship. It's the, it's the motive behind it. Alright, so Jesus here, we should not see Jesus as we, especially as we continue throughout Matthew chapter 6, we should not see Jesus here as coming against public demonstrations of godliness altogether. We should not see Jesus coming against any time that uh, there is an off, a public offering and us giving to it. We should not see next week Jesus coming against any type of public prayer or public fasting because we in fact know that Jesus himself did things like that. That Jesus himself worshipped publicly and prayed publicly and taught publicly and did things publicly. And so that's really not what is at the heart of the issue here. What Jesus is coming after here is not the method, he's coming after the motive. He's coming after the motive as in why do you need it to be public? As in why are you doing what you do? What is the reason behind the praying? What is the reason behind the giving? What is the reason behind the fasting? What is the motive? What is in your heart? Because as we're going to see, and what Jesus is going to teach us, is that it is entirely possible for us to do good things, even apparently godly things, in a way that is sinful, in a way that in fact is sin itself. Dishonoring Christ rather than honoring him, even doing things that he has asked us to do. See, what we have here and what Jesus is talking about is Jesus is talking about a sense of self-deceived, self-centered idolatry. And it really comes to us in two forms. It comes to us in two forms. It comes to us, first of all, in that we need other people to believe that we are better than we really are. And all of us fight with that. If, if immediately your thoughts go to other people, I would, I would caution you to pump the brakes and look in the mirror for a second. Because all of us have that in our hearts. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just that we need other people to believe that we're godly. It's that we, in fact, need to believe that we ourselves are better than we really are. And so it's, it's this double-layered deception, it's this double-layered idolatry in which we are trying to convince other people that we are godly while simultaneously trying to convince ourselves that we are godly. And so what we, in fact, what we are in effect doing is we are in effect taking the glory away from the Lord and placing it on ourselves. We're robbing him of the glory that he is owed so that we, in fact, might receive it. It's us saying, look at all the work that I've done. Look at all the work that I've done in the church. Look at all the work that I've done in the community. Look at all the, the places that I've been for the gospel. Rather than saying, look at the work God has done for me. Look at what the work that God has done in me. Look at the work God has done through me. I am a worm were it not for him. It's us saying, look at the sacrifices that I make. 
Look at, look at how, how much I give. That's hard for me. Look, look at how much time I devote. It's hard for me. Look at how much sacrifice I'm making in my life for the church and for the gospel and for whomever. Rather than saying, look at the sacrifice of Christ. Look at the sacrifice of Jesus. It's this faith that gets it backwards. Rather than saying, look at Christ, look at Christ, look at Christ. It's saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. And it is, in fact, deception, and it is idolatry. And so Jesus says, Jesus says, listen to what he says. He says, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. You have no reward from your Father in heaven. Here's what he's saying, essentially. What Jesus is essentially saying is he's essentially saying, who do you really want to get your reward from? Who do you really want to get your reward from? Who is it that motivates you? Who is it that inspires you? Who is it that excites you? Who is it that you want to receive reward from? Do you want to receive reward from, from men giving you accolades? Do you want to receive re- rewards from, from other people patting you on the back? Do you want to receive the reward of looking in the mirror and knowing you're a self-made man and, and having your, your, your chest puff up? Or do you want to receive the reward of the Father? Do you want to receive the reward of God himself? What is the aim of your godliness? What is the aim of your righteousness? What is the aim of your faith? Is the aim your ego or is the aim the glory of God? See, at issue here is truthfully whether or not God is enough for you. It's whether or not God is enough for you. Here's what I mean by that. If we believe the God of the Bible is the God that we're coming after here. If we believe that the God of the Bible is the God that that we are worshiping and that we are singing to and that we're we're following. If that's who we believe that this is. We believe that first of all he's omnipresent. Meaning that he is everywhere. He is in both the public places and the private places. In the displayed places and in the secret places. If we, if we are following after him, then we must follow Ephesians chapter 2, which says that the purpose of God saving you, that one of the primary reasons that God saves you and delivers you from your sin and calls you into life is so that for the rest of eternity, he can demonstrate his incomparable riches and incomparable kindness by bestowing all of his glory on you and generously and overwhelmingly giving to you forever. We believe 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Then we believe that, that one day we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And standing at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be there and, and everything good that we've done and everything bad that we've done will be made clear and will be made apparent and will be, will be shown in front of us for which we will give an account. And if we affirm what the scriptures tell us, if we believe that this is our God, then we understand that every act of righteousness, every act of godliness, every act of obedience, regardless of how small, regardless of how secret, regardless of how seemingly insignificant, will be rewarded and will be rewarded eternally and infinitely. So an issue here is do you really believe God is enough? Do you really believe that God is enough? Because every time you seek the applause of man, every time you you seek the inflation of your own ego, here's what you're saying. Best case scenario, you're saying, God, I need them too. 
God, I need them too. I have you. I'm glad I have you, but I need them too. I need them to think I'm awesome too. I need them to think that I'm great too. I need them to think I'm godly too. You're not enough. I have you. I'm glad I have you, but I need them too. Worst case scenario, you're saying, God, I don't really believe you at all. I don't believe that your reward is as uh, sufficient as you say that it is. I don't believe that your salvation is eff as effective as you say it is. I don't believe that you will satisfy me forever. I don't believe that you can bring contentment in me now. God, I just don't believe you're enough. And so I need to seek my reward in this earth and in this world. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see the severity of what we're talking about this morning. And I, I would ask you just to stop for a second and to reflect on your life and to go to the, the depths of your heart and to peel back through the plastic and to peel back through the mask and to peel back through all of the, the surface level, superficial, egotistical godliness in your life and to get to the depths of your soul and ask yourself, is God enough for me? Is God enough for me? Because Jesus says that if he's not, if you need the applause of man, if you need the accolades of the earth, then you will receive no reward in heaven. He doesn't say you'll receive a reduced reward. He doesn't say you'll receive a lesser reward. He, in fact, says you will receive no reward. That, in other words, you won't be there. You won't be in heaven. You aren't redeemed. You aren't with him. Now, that seems like a bold statement. What's the logic of it? The logic of it is this. Is if you believe in your heart, through the actions, through the, through the ways that you, you portray yourself, through the ways that you live your life, if you believe that God in some way, whether it's, it's you literally saying it or you just affirming it through your lifestyle, if you believe that God is not enough, then you have created a new God in your own mind. You have created a, a God in your mind that is much smaller than the one true God, much smaller than the God of the scriptures. You have created in your mind a, a lesser God who cannot bear the weight of your sin, who cannot bear the weight of your disparity, who cannot bear the weight of your depravity. You have created a God who is insufficient in reward and by necessity must also be insufficient in salvation. And so you're pursuing after a God that's false, imaginary, not real, and he can't bear the weight of eternity for you. So if your faith is in one of those kinds of gods, whether it's somebody that you've created according to, to your misinterpretation of the scripture, whether it's a God you found out in the world somewhere, regardless of how you came to worship such a God, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, he's insufficient. It's insufficient. And Jesus is reminding us that if we find that reality in our lives, we will find no reality in heaven. And so he begins to go and move forward and begin... Illustrating, uh, illustrating this, and we're going to get just into the first one of these this week. And he illustrates it, first of all, this week um, by talking about giving. He says in verse 2, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. What he's saying? Say, all right, so, so you understand the big principle here. You understand the big principle of, of 
if your faith is for anything other than the glory of God, then you're really an obstacle to God's glory. If your faith, uh, if, if you're displaying your righteousness in a way that is to seek the applause of man or to seek the, the love of man or the commendation of the earth, then, then really you, you're, you may be doing good things, but you're doing it in a sinful way. And so now Jesus is saying, and here's how this can happen. Here's how this can actually look in your life. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is, what does he say? He says, and when you give to the needy, right? When you give. There's an assumption of giving. Now, to everybody who thinks it's that Baptist preachers are the only one that talk about money, I present to you Jesus, okay? Jesus himself talks about money in the course of his preaching and uses it as an application. That Jesus is teaching us that, that his his disciples will in fact be givers. That, that, that's the assumption that we will be givers. That we will be, we will be generous in nature and generous in spirit. And it's fair for us to say that, that if we do not find in us a generous spirit, then we do not find in us the spirit of Christ because Christ himself is a generous savior. But that's not the main point here. The main point here is not that you should give. It's the nature of your giving. The main point here is that it is possible for you to give, to even substantially give, to even give 10, 15, 20% of your income, to even give large sums of money to missions efforts and to the, to the church for, for functioning and, and living out the Great Commission and for uh, helping needy people in soup kitchens and uh, homeless people on the street. Like, like you can write really big checks and you can give large sums of money and you can do it in a way that is sinful. You can do it in a way in which you are bringing your offering to the Lord and he's going to reject it. That you can use checks and you can use money and you can use giving as a camouflage for your sinfulness. And as a, as, a, as a type of feed, as a type of kindling for your own ego and for your own self-righteousness. And does this not just show us the, the depths of the wickedness of the human heart? Does this not really just show us, show us how desperately wicked, how exceedingly sinful we are, that we can take something as, as pure and as beautiful and as good as generosity, and we can corrupt it in a way that doesn't bring God honor, but instead brings him dishonor? Humans are desperately wicked, disgustingly wicked. And so Jesus is saying, look, it's not just about what you give. It's not just that you give. It's, it's that you give from pure motivation. When I was reading that, I was thinking about Acts chapter 5. If you read in Acts chapter 5, you have this early church, and it's really so beautiful. I mean, um, we, we talked about it some in here. Like, people would have need, and so people would come, and, and they would sell everything that they have, and they would, they would give to their brother in need. They would sell large pieces of property. They would sell homes and they would sell heirlooms and they would sell all of these things because they understood and they believed that, you know what, I'm not living for this world. I'm not living for this life. I, I'm living for something greater than all of this. And so there's this beautiful picture in the, in the book of Acts early on as the church is getting started of just, just the, the, the illogical generosity of the church. Well, in Acts chapter 5, this kind of comes to a head. And we see how, how sinfulness and wickedness can corrupt all of that. We're told the story about Ananias and Sapphira. 
Ananias and Sapphira want, wanted to participate in all of the things that were going on in the church. And so what they do is they, they go and they own a piece of property and they sell it. And by all appearances, it appears that they take a large percentage, a large chunk, and write a sizable check and give it to the church and say, hey, care for the widows with this. Care for the orphans with this. Go forward and do missions with this. And so they give this substantial amount of income. But what Ananias and Sapphira did is that they made it appear as though they had given all of the money, when in fact they had kept out some for themselves. See, really, that reveals the motive of it. It reveals the motive that they weren't really out for generosity. They, their, their goal was not really the Great Commission. Their goal was not really to help the needy. Their goal was to inflate their public persona. Their goal was to make themselves appear as though they are godlier than they really are. And so Peter and the apostles confront them. First, Ananias comes and, and Peter says, did you give all of it? Yeah, I gave all of it. God struck him dead. Sapphira comes and three hours later, where's my husband? What's going on? Did you all give all of it? God struck her dead. What Ananias and Sapphira did is the same thing that all of us do way too often in our lives. Is they presented themselves as obstacles to the, to the glory of God. Obstacles. They presented themselves as being something that they weren't. And instead of acknowledging and exalting Christ and lifting up the cross and pointing people to him, they were saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. And God saw them as an obstacle to his glory, not as a conduit. And he struck them dead. Brothers and sisters, it is a terrifying thing to be in a place in which you are an obstacle to the glory of God. A terrifying thing. And God takes his offerings very seriously and he takes your acts of righteousness very seriously and if you get to the place in which it's about you and not about him it is not beyond reason it is not beyond scripture that he could just take you out he takes his glory remarkably serious painfully serious terribly serious See, the issue of what Jesus is talking about here is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. That's the issue, right? That's the issue. It's that out on the exterior, there's this facade of godliness when inside there's truthfully this, this deep-seated, dark, blackened, dead heart. And Jesus says as much. That you're doing this. When you do this, you're doing it as the hypocrites do it. When you do this, you're doing it as the Pharisees do it. See, the, the word hypocrite comes from the Greek theater. A hypocrite originally was someone who wore a mask and would come into character or put on a character. And they would go up on the stage and they would pretend to be somebody that they really weren't. At least as long as the performance was going on. And then they would come off and they would take the mask off. There's way too much of this in the church. There's way too much of this in my own life. There's way too much of this in, in your life. In which we, we come to, to church and it's a facade, it's, it's a mask. We come to Jesus as though he is not our savior but instead our PR coordinator. So that he can make us look to our children and look to our husbands and look to our pastor and look to our community and our friends as the person that we want to be seen as. And so we come to church and we come into character. We go to the ball field and we go into character. Sometimes not always the same character. And we're putting on this, this public person, 
public persona of, of Christian, this public persona of godliness. And we're moving forward and we're going out and the Bible teaches us that when we stand before the Lord, the performance will be over. And we will stand in front of him naked and exposed and barren and he will know. And he already knows. And we will experience the wrath that is owed to anyone who places themselves as an obstacle to the glory of God. In your life, in your life, where do you see hypocrisy? For some of you, this whole Christian thing has always been pretend. For some of you, the whole Christian thing has always just been what you needed to do to, to get married to your wife. Or what you, you needed to do so that you could hopefully raise good kids. Or what you, you needed to do to be socially accepted. Or what you needed to do to cope with, with the guilt that was just eating you alive. And so you come and you come and you come and you leave and you leave and you leave and you're no better for the keep. For some of you, you're in Christ. You're in Christ, but there's too many instances in which the flesh takes control of your life, in which that sinful nature in you comes out, and it becomes more about a facade. It becomes more about your public relations campaign, more about your, your mask, your, your, who you're supposed to be than who you really are. Jesus says for all of us that live that way, we have already received our reward. Because if this is you, if this is the image of your godliness... If you're going after the applause of men, if you're going after a pat on the back, if you're going after uh, other people thinking that you're great and thinking that you're sacrificial, if you're going after the inflation of your ego, then, then really what you, you better enjoy it because that's all you're going to get. You have received your reward, and what a cheap reward it is. You traded in an eternal crown that you could enjoy forever for a cheap thrill, for a depreciating treasure that moths and rust will destroy. Because the truth is, is the opinions of people change quickly, don't they? Matter of fact, the, our own opinion changes quickly. So just consider even for a second the insecurity that comes into our lives. When, when, our, when our worth, when our value, when, when our self-perception has to do with what other people think about us. And, what other, and even what we think about ourselves rather than the fact that we are firmly in the grip of Christ. And our identity is in him. And so Jesus says that his disciples should live different than this. His, his disciples should give differently than this. His disciples should demonstrate generosity differently than this. What does he say? He says, verse 3, but when you give to the needy, you, he's, he's moving from talking about this, this generalized terms, right? The, the pronouns are changing. He's been talking about them, now he's talking about you. Now he's talking about us. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know what he's saying there? He's saying there's a sense. And when you give, and when you, when you live out your godliness, and when you live out the gospel, and you, you live as Christ has commanded you to live, that you should even hide it from yourself. That your, your left hand should not know what your right hand is giving. In other words, you should forget what you've given as soon as you've given it. That you shouldn't be keeping a running tab in your mind of all of the sacrifices that you've made for the church. And run, keeping a, a running tab in your mind of all of the, the costliness of your ministry. Or the costliness of your godliness. Or the costliness of all of the things that you're doing. That there shouldn't be this, this running tab going through. No, your right hand shouldn't know what your left hand is doing. And your left hand should not know what your right hand is doing. You should forget it altogether. 
And I think that's really gets to the heart of it, that it's, it's not so much about public godliness as it is about egotistical godliness. It's godliness that in any way makes you grow in your opinion of yourself. It's godliness in any way that makes you think, man, I'm great. Man, look at what I did. Man, look at how I was able to accomplish that. Look at the check that I was able to write. And I think he's talking about giving, by the way. Because I think checks can be an especially deceptive way of, confuse, of, of convincing ourselves that we're godlier than we really are. We may not really be passionate about missions, but as long as we can write the check to missions, we can say that we are. We may not really be uh, passionate about the gospel and really be passionate about the church, but as long as we can write a check, we can say that we are. We may not really be passionate about the needy and really concerned about the needy, but as long as we can give to them, we are. Especially living in an affluent area, living in an affluent country. Did you know that if you make more than $1,500 a year, you're wealthier than 80% of the world? You're affluent, brothers and sisters, all of you. And so our affluence can deceive us. It can deceive us, and it can inflate our egos to convince us that we are better, that we are godlier than we really are. When the truth is, is the offering that we're bringing is being rejected by God anyway. Because it's coming from a bad heart. You see, your giving doesn't impress God when it comes from a bad heart. Your giving doesn't. Your giving is unimpressive to God when it doesn't honor him to begin with. The, the giver that the Lord seeks is the giver that is generous and sacrificial and cheerful and thankful and gracious. That's the giver, giver that the Lord is looking for. And so this morning, are you the type of person that keeps a running tab in your mind? Are you the type of person that, that keeps a list of all the things, perhaps even placing others in your debt because of what you've done for them? That is not the giving of the cross. What has Christ done for us? He died on the cross. He gives us his grace. He pours over us with his blood. And as soon as he does so, he forgets all of our debt. He forgets all of our trespasses. He forgets all of our sin. And he never he never remembers them again. And what does he do tomorrow? He gives us more grace. And the next day, more grace. And the next day, more grace. Jesus is not keeping tabs on the amount of grace that he's giving to you. And our generosity is to emulate that. Our lives, our godliness is to emulate that. And so Jesus says that if we live this way, if we live this way, and your father who sees in secret will reward you will reward you. And can I just say, it will be enough. It will be enough. As we close, I want to do something different. I want, I want you to close your eyes for just a second. I want you to close your eyes and imagine with me this morning. Imagine with me that you've passed away from this life and you are standing before the judgment seat of Christ. There are myriads and myriads of heavenly beings surrounding him. And they are all proclaiming in one voice at one time, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But you hardly even notice them. Your eyes are locked on him. Your eyes are locked on Jesus. You see the nail scars on his hands. And you weep knowing that it was your sin that caused them. 
You see the grace in his eyes and you rejoice knowing that his grace is aimed squarely at you. As you hear him begin to speak, your heart begins to pound so hard that it almost drowns out his voice as you hang on every syllable that he speaks. With a voice of joy, Jesus, your resurrected king, says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he begins recounting every deed of true godliness and generosity that you've ever committed. All of those things you did, all of that money you gave, all of that time you sacrificed that you thought meant nothing to anyone. He knows about it all. He loves you so much that he refuses to skip one detail. And with every joyful story, he showers you with rewards that leave you speechless, reveling in your own unworthiness of such a prize, and left stunned by his extravagant grace toward you. Brothers and sisters, his reward will be enough. He is enough. Worship him this morning. Let me pray for you.